pick a, a name for the child. Uh, but you don't just pick a name, any name. You have to make sure it kind of goes well with your family name, right? You can't just have any, any name. It has to kind of have a good ring to it. And that's, well, that's what we did anyway. So we had to have three syllables in the, in the first name to have a nice ring with a single syllable surname. That's how we thought about it anyway. Uh, so I've been thinking a bit about family names recently. And recently, a friend of mine posted on Facebook and he said he had the 29,000th most common surname in the world, 29,000th. His name, uh, his surname or family name was Vida, V-A-J-D-A, so not very common. Uh, but I was pretty interested to see how our surname, Tong, ranked uh, amongst everyone in the world. So I went onto the website, uh, www.forebears.io.com and I'm proud to say that Chong, well, it did pretty well. Top 500. Actually, it was the 468th most common surname in the world. Uh, according to this website, there are over 1 million of us in the world, and in Australia, 5,000. I reckon the data's a bit out of date, but over 5,000 Chongs. It's pretty interesting what you can find out about your family name on websites uh, uh, throughout the internet. So on surnamedb.com, um, research in America in the year 2000, I said, of all the Chongs there, 3% of them were white Caucasian, which is kind of interesting. You see a white guy and goes, my name's, you know, Brad Chong. You're like, oh, that's a bit weird. But then, 6% were Hispanic. That'd be even weirder. I'd be really freaked out if I met a Hispanic guy and said, you know, I'm Manuel Chong. That'd be weird. Um, but it's, it's kind of interesting. There's a whole lot of websites out there uh, that tell us information about our, our family names. Uh, probably some of you have been advertised by Ancestry.com. Uh, what this website does is it traces your family name and, and pulls in all kind of data from, from international records, migration records, births and deaths, and essentially creates a picture, a story of, of your family, how they've migrated over time, the different kind of occupations your, your family's had, and, and maybe why you are the way you are because of your family history. What does it say about uh, our surname, Chong. Well, I was too cheap to pay the $30 it would have required me to get access to this website, but I'm pretty sure it would have said something really interesting. See, the reality is our, our, our names, and especially our, our, our family names, aren't just kind of interesting statistics. Our family names link us to a greater story, a tradition. As you talk to your parents and, and grandparents and maybe your great-grandparents, you, you learn really interesting things about your family. Maybe why the, you are the way you are right now. And so the reason that, that the Gospel writer Matthew starts his account of who Jesus is uh, by giving us Jesus' family tree, the genealogy, is so that we would understand more about this person of Jesus. See, the Gospels are essentially eyewitness accounts. They, they tell us about this person of Jesus. It's evident. Verse 1, this is the genealogy of who? Well, it's Jesus. And so Matthew is writing. He's writing to, to his readers and he's writing to you this morning so that you will understand who Jesus is and why he's come into this world. Who Jesus is and why he's come into this world. And so what this genealogy, this whole list of names, what it does for us is it locates Jesus in history. See, he's far more than just some random uh, Middle Eastern guy that, that we read about. See, he's actually someone that's real. He's not just a figment of people's imaginations. See, Jesus is part of a great tradition and a great heritage. And so this genealogy reminds us of, of who exactly Jesus is and why he's come into this world. 
And so today, as we look at the Bible, we'll see that the story of Jesus, as, as told through this genealogy, is a story about new beginnings. It's a story about God's faithfulness. And ultimately, what we see is it's a story about salvation. And so as we think through these big ideas, a new beginning, God's faithfulness, and ultimately salvation, I want you to walk out the door this morning with a renewed sense of hope. A hope that essentially is grounded in the relentless love of God for his people. I think that's what this passage should do for you. You should become more hopeful about life in this world, about facing the brokenness and suffering of your lives as you read this list of names. So why don't we look at this passage together? And if you want to follow along in the bulletins, um, we're looking at the first point, a story of new beginnings. See, this genealogy is, is a story about new beginnings. It's right there at the beginning of verse 1. Uh, look there with me. Verse 1, we read, this is the genealogy of, of Jesus. Uh, if you literally translate the first few words of verse 1, uh, it's literally translated as a book of beginnings. This phrase, a book of beginnings, happens only two other times in all of Scripture. It happens in Genesis, in Genesis 2 and Genesis 5. And each instance where this phrase is used, there is a significant new beginning. See, what the Gospel writer Matthew here is trying to tell us to do is he's making allusions back to the book of Genesis, uh, suggesting that as Jesus arrives in his birth, in Jesus' coming, we're seeing significant new beginnings. And that kind of fits in with the whole context of the Gospel of Matthew. The whole idea of the Gospel of Matthew is about new beginnings, the story of Jesus who's come into this world to establish God's new kingdom, a kingdom where God dwells with his people, a kingdom that, that is devoid of evil and suffering and wickedness. This genealogy tells us that Jesus is the beginning of that new kingdom. He's the beginning of God doing something great and amazing and new. But note there, it's not uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus is described in a few different ways. Verse 1, he's described as, as the son of Abraham. And this is where the, the genealogy really originates from, isn't it? Verse 2, it's, it's Abraham is the first person that's listed in this genealogy. If you're a visitor and you don't know who Abraham is, that's okay. We meet Abraham in the first book of the Bible in chapter 12. Abraham, we, we, we find out, is, is really a, a, his story is a story of new beginnings. See, Abraham's a nobody. He's not someone that, that's part of a royal family. He's not someone that's really important by, by any standard. He's not a celebrity. He's not someone that we would pay attention to walking down the street. He's an ordinary nobody. And yet it's to Abraham that God speaks. And he calls him out of his homeland to a, to a distant land. And as he does this, he makes amazing promises to Abraham and his descendants. He tells Abraham that his descendants would be numerous. So numerous that they would be like sand on the seashore. That these, his descendants that would ultimately become the nation of Israel would inherit the land of Canaan and, and they would be a nation that would be blessed by God, be a blessing to others. Ultimately, what we see in these promises is God is promising uh, that they would enjoy all that God had intended for them. He says that he will be their God and they will be his people, this opportunity, this promise of a relationship with God. See, for a nobody, uh, for someone that's just walking down the street, for God to pick them out and make these great promises represents new beginnings. He has no claim. Abraham's no claim to, to some kind of amazing legacy or, or to some kind of dynasty. No, they represent something new. And what we start to see in the New Testament is that anyone 
that is Abraham's descendant, not necessarily by blood, but by faith, can share in these new promises. But what is truly amazing about all these promises is we start to realize that Abraham, and, and really anyone, isn't worthy of any of them. See, we read at the beginning of the book of Genesis, in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They essentially rejected God and distanced themselves and, and really all of us who, who are just like Adam and Eve from all of humanity. And because of, of what the Bible calls their sin, humanity really is doomed to death and judgment. They're unable to enjoy a relationship with God. But what we also see in Scripture, even though humanity disobeys God, even in their sin, God dearly loves the people he has created. He graciously provides ways in which they would not have to face judgment and death. God graciously, graciously provides animal coverings for Adam and Eve. He, he lovingly saves Noah and his family by, by calling Noah to, to build an ark. But in the most explicit signal that God dearly loves his people and wants to be in relationship with them is he gives these promises to Abraham. See, this is why Jesus being a descendant of Abraham is so significant. Jesus is part of that family that God said he would, be, he would bless, but use as a blessing to bless this whole world. And Jesus is part of the family that knows about this idea of new beginnings. See, the reality is your, your present and, and quite often your future is so often wrapped up with your past. If you've ever failed an assessment or a quiz or maybe even a whole subject, so often people can overcompensate. They can study really hard, so afraid that they might fail again. Their past has shaped their present and even their future. Uh, for those of you who've had a, a girl break up with them, ever since you've tried to start dating again, you, you quickly make awkward jokes, really hoping that the, you'll impress other girls only to turn them away. Once again, your past impacting your future and probably your very distant future as you find no girls that will laugh at your jokes. See, the reality is your past always affects your future. Maybe you make a bad investment and then you so often become worried about retiring or providing for your family. And for those of you who are just graduating and are thinking about a job, um, partying in first year and not doing well in your subjects can really affect your weighted average mark. I'm sure all of you know about that. But see, as we, as we hear about this story of Jesus, a story of new beginnings that Abraham finds, we see how it's important. See, new beginnings with God, it's not about God miraculously filling your bank balance if you've made a bad investment. Or God filling people um, with amazing self-confidence so they can really make great one-liners in front of girls. No, that's not the point of new beginnings. See, when we talk about new beginnings with God, we're talking about this opportunity to one, once again be back in relationship with Him. A relationship that we were always created for, but we, we missed out on because of our sinfulness. See, God's promises to Abraham become this precursor to the new beginnings that anyone that has, has an opportunity to have a relationship with God. Just as God was talking about a new people, enjoying the blessing of God, we find that because of Jesus, we all, we all have this, this great new opportunity. This opportunity to be in relationship with God. And, and what that means is that we're now defined no longer by what we do in this world, by, we're defined by our relationship with God. We're no longer defined by the shame of our past. We're no longer defined by disappointments and failures. We have an opportunity, a, an opportunity to, to wipe that slate clean. You've become defined now by your relationship with God. A relationship where God says, regardless of what you've done, 
I love you dearly. I warmly, excitedly accept you into my family. I guarantee that this life will not be your only, but there will be life after death. This is the new identity, the new relationship that we get to experience. And, and so if you're a believer, if you're a Christian this morning, this is why I think that these lists of names should generate a, a, a hopefulness as we see that Jesus is the son of Abraham. See, knowing this new relationship we have with God, we start to think about suffering differently. You should realize that your failures and setbacks don't need to define who you are as a person. You realize that God is, is using, is allowing these moments to shape you, to become more like Christ. You start to think about your sanctification or, or your maturity in God differently. You know that God is at work and that even though you failed to live up to how God called you to live once more, you know that God is, is definitely shaping and transforming and working in your life. If you truly understand the new beginnings that come in Christ, then there is a joy and hopefulness that invades your heart. There should be this perseverance now, even amongst suffering, even amongst wickedness and evil, as you see brokenness in this world, there is a hopefulness that stirs in your heart. And so Christian, whatever your year has been like, the Christmas story should remind you of the joy you have because of Jesus. Jesus who has come, who is the son of Abraham, who brings us into relationship with God. And so Jesus' story becomes our story, a story of new beginnings. But we also see in this story a story of God's faithfulness. And that's our second point. See, note also Jesus is not just the son of Abraham. Verse 1, he's also the son of David. See, this is a sign of God's faithfulness. David, we, we know from the Bible, is one of the greatest kings of Israel. And just like Abraham, God made him amazing promises. He told David that someone from his seed, a, a king, would be raised. A king that would establish an amazing kingdom, a kingdom that would last forever. And on this king and this kingdom, God's love and favor would continually be poured out. But ever since that time when God has made these promises, people have been looking. Where's this king? When is this kingdom coming? Is this is this new king the one that will, will bring about what God had promised? See, as we look at this genealogy, it's actually a challenge to the faithfulness of God. See, you note in verse 17, uh, we see that it's, it's kind of a snapshot of the nation of Israel. So the first 14 names remind us of how this kingdom grew to become the nation of Israel. It was a slow growth from one man to a, to a whole nation. In the second list of names, we see a whole list of kings. That represents in many ways the decline and ultimate exile or essentially removal of Israel from the land that God had promised them because of their faithfulness to God. And in the third list of names, we see essentially a slow restoration of God's people back into the kingdom. But really in these kings, we see uh, not the one that has been promised. And so in these lists of names, we actually see a lot of disappointment. God's promises haven't been fulfilled. Instead of a good and benevolent king, we've seen kings of Israel, especially in this list, who are mean and self-serving and sinful. The history of Israel, in many ways, uh, is the antithesis to God being faithful to his people. Think of it a bit like this. Um, I love when new restaurants open up down on Kings Road. Um, they, they pop up and you, you hope for the best, right, don't you? Um, and so imagine a, a new steakhouse opens on Kingsgrove Road. I'm not sure why they would open up a steakhouse there, but let's just say, for example, they open up a steakhouse. 
and you're pretty excited because you're like a local steakhouse, that's pretty impressive, and you get down and you sit there and you've heard, you know, mixed reviews. And so you read the menu, and the menu says this, a perfectly char-grilled, medium-rare uh, ribeye skillet steak with a side of fluffy mashed potatoes infused with garlic and rosemary, which is now paired with an assortment of market-fresh vegetables steamed to perfection. And so all of you can have a steak for lunch now. Right, so you, you read this, this menu description and you're like, man, I want some steak, give me some steak. So you order the steak, you're sitting there, you're longing for, for your steak to come, and, and it gets delivered. And then you look down and you see an overcooked, charred, rubbery steak. You taste some of that mash, it's stodgy, it's, it's, it's way too salty. There's none of this infused garlic and rosemary business happening. Uh, the vegetables there are kind of steamed to an inch of their life, they're like pale, green and limp and you know, really unimpressive. See, often these, these disconnects in expectations and the reality, what is promised and what is experienced leads to uh, disappointment, leads to us being upset. See, as we look at the genealogy of Jesus, we see a whole list of kings that are just, in many ways, subpar. It feels as if God has been serving up rubbery steak and stodgy mash to the nation of Israel. It feels like he's been unfaithful in keeping his promises. It would be easy for anyone to be disappointed in God. But see, Matthew's purpose in saying that Jesus is the son of David is to remind us that God is faithful to keep his promises to the nation. It reminds us that God has not forgotten them. And in spite of the wicked things that Israel have done, in spite of their idolatry and serving other gods, this genealogy is telling us that Jesus is the promised king. He's the one that would bring about God's new kingdom. Now, how do we know this? Well, I think verse 17 gives us a clue. See, verse 17 tells us how uh, all these names are organised. Look there with me. It tells us that essentially we have three lots of 14. Um, Now, if you're an astute historian, you'll actually know there are a number of discrepancies here. Uh, The second group of 14 actually has omitted uh, some kings. So if you look through other records of the Bible, um, Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah are all missing from this list of names, of this list of 14 kings. And if you're uh, smart and good at math, I hope all of you are, if you count the last 14 people, there actually aren't 14 people there. There's actually 13 or 12. We can't quite figure out. Depends where you start from. Why are all these discrepancies there? Is, what's the point of saying there are three sets of 14 if there aren't actually 14 in the list? See, the author is not really trying to make a historical point. He's not saying this is an actual historical representation of every single king, that all the kings are historical people. No, the author is trying to make for us a theological point. He's trying to teach us about God and what God is doing. And what is this point? Well, hopefully you can follow this this, this simple piece of math that I'm about to break down for us. Instead of having 14 people all in a list, let's break it into half. What's half of 14? Seven, right? So if we count all the lists of sevens, we actually have six sets of seven instead of three sets of 14. Hopefully that math is not too difficult for everyone here. I'm hoping, because all the kids are up there, so if you can't figure this out, we've got problems. But if we have three sets of 14 and we halve that, we have six sets of seven. And so what we see here, as Jesus is born, we see the beginning of the seventh set of seven. If you read through the scripture, the number seven is so often associated with the idea of perfection and completeness. Think about if you were with us through the book of Leviticus. Remember the year of Jubilee? 
which was the seventh year of the seventh times of seven Sabbath years. And what happened in Jubilee? Jubilee was an image of restoration and renewal for God's land and his people. See, if Jesus becomes this seventh set of seven, Matthew is indicating to us that the son of David is bringing about this new kingdom of God, this kingdom of perfection, this kingdom that will make all things new, a kingdom that is previewed in the year of Jubilee, a kingdom that we hear prophesied about in Revelation 21. Have you ever waited for something? Maybe without public transport, you're often waiting for a bus or a train. And maybe for some of you, it's school holidays that are coming up or, or potentially annual leave. And maybe you're waiting for the chance to start dating or get engaged or, or even married. See, waiting creates for us this anticipation that, that it only consummates, only happens once the thing arrives. Uh, similar to the joy that we feel when the bus finally turns up or when holidays finally get here. Matthew is wanting us to have a joy as we see that Jesus, the promised king, has arrived. God has been faithful to keep his promises. The promised king is here. See, this is what the genealogy is hoping to do for us. Stir joy and hope in our hearts, knowing who Jesus is and why he is here. It's so easy to be discouraged as we look at life in this world. And you only need to turn on the news to see how much tragedy happens if not in your own lives, throughout the lives of this world. This genealogy allows us to be, in many ways, excited about the future, knowing that God's promised king has arrived, that he will make all things right and good again one day. This genealogy, this list of names, which is a bit random, is actually a reminder to us that God is faithful in keeping his promises. And so in this list of names, we, we hear a story of new beginnings, this opportunity to be in relationship with God, a story of God's faithfulness, and ultimately we, we recognise all of this is a story of salvation. See, note there how Jesus is described. He's not in verse 1, not just the, the son of Abraham, not just the son of David. Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, the Messiah literally means uh, an anointed one. Well, what does it mean to be a Messiah or someone that is anointed? A bit of context here. Even as Israel, we read, returned from exile, they were always under a foreign rule. The nation longed for a time when uh, they wouldn't have people over them, telling them what to do, telling them how they could live. They longed for, for the opportunity to be a nation by themselves once again. And so there were these prophecies that talked about the anointed one, the one that would come and save them, to relieve them from the physical bondage of these foreign powers. This is what Israel as a nation were hoping for. Yet see, God had greater hopes for a Messiah. See, he wanted a Messiah to come, to not just deal with the evil and, and the wickedness that we see in this world that Israel felt, but he wanted to deal with the source of that injustice and evil, the sin that plagues our hearts and our lives. See, the Messiah comes to establish God's new eternal kingdom of peace and security. But the Messiah comes also to restore people into a relationship with God by removing the sin that stains their hearts. God sends the Messiah, the Anointed One, to redeem and restore His people, not just from physical bondage, but from spiritual bondage as well. See, that's the amazing story of Christmas, isn't it? It reminds us of the story of salvation. God does not leave us, His people, in the brokenness of this world. God intervenes by sending Jesus to come and, and restore come and redeem us, to, to come and save us from our sins. 
And so this genealogy, this, this list of names, really is a helpful focus on what the Christmas story is about. God sending Jesus to save his people. God keeping his promise to build his kingdom. I think it's most highlighted as we look at some of the names there. Look with me to verses 3 to 6. See, it's extremely odd. Uh, in a list of male family people or male people, multiple females are listed. Do you notice there? Uh, four women are listed. Verse 3, we have Tamar. Verse 5, Rahab. Verse 5, Ruth. And verse 6, we read about Uriah's wife. His name was Bathsheba. Uh, there are a number of things that connect all these women. Uh, three out of four of them came from non-Jewish backgrounds, people outside the nation of Israel. Three out of four of them really had quite dubious occupations. They were either prostitutes or known adulterers. See, the women in this genealogy essentially represent all those who really have no hope of enjoying God's blessing. These women represent outsiders of God's people, those with morally dubious backgrounds. In many ways, in modern terms, these women reflect murderers, thieves, and terrorists. It's probably bad to take that out of context, but that's the kind of scandal that we should see as we see women in this passage. These women reflect people least likely to be accepted by God to be called into his family. But see, as Matthew places them in, in a really a prestigious list of names, he's making a statement. He's saying that the story of Jesus, this story of new beginnings of a relationship with God, this story of God's faithfulness, is a story that anyone can enjoy. Anyone has this opportunity to experience the promises and blessing of God. Anyone is welcome to participate. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to, to earn a certain level of credits or, or do certain things. Anyone is welcome. See, this becomes a story for anyone of being saved from our sin, of having life after death because of who Jesus is. Jesus is sent as the Messiah, the anointed one. He's the anointed king who defeats our greatest foes of sin and death. He's the anointed high priest who offers a perfect sacrifice to cleanse us from our sin. He's the anointed prophet who speaks truth about who God is and how we can know him. See, this genealogy is really a reminder of what Christianity is all about. Christianity is a story about new beginnings when we're welcomed into a relationship with God by his faithfulness. And so it seems odd that as we read this whole list of names, that these lists of names should really be a catalyst for hopefulness in your heart. Because just as Jesus came and God was faithful to enter this world once, he tells us that he will come again and will make this world new. You should walk out the door right now, being reminded of this with hope in your heart. But what does it really look like to be hopeful people? I mean, everyone talks about like peace and love and joy and hope. What does it mean to be hopeful though? I think three things. The first thing about being hopeful is that you're resilient. I think hope creates in you a resilience that leads to a perseverance. See, if Jesus' story of new beginnings becomes your story, then you, re you realize that you're not defined by your weaknesses, you're not defined by your failure, you're defined by who you are in Jesus. And so you start to, to face disappointment and suffering in a different way. I'm sure all of us, as we look back at the year, there are moments uh, that we regret living the way we did. There are moments we, we go back and we wish we could change. There are moments when we see we have lost the battle to sin again. 
the hope in response to this passage leads us not to define ourselves by these moments, to become resilient, to persist in, in seeking to be faithful to God in all areas of our lives, to persevere in, in seeking to believe that God is good. He's in control regardless of the circumstances. Hope leads us to persevere, to be resilient. But I think hope also calls you uh, to be realistic. See, some ways the way we muster hope is to kind of ignore all the bad things in our lives. The way we deal with difficulties is to kind of ignore pain, right? You get a bad grade at, uh, at school and then you say, well, at least I'm alive and I've got a lot to be thankful for, right? You kind of just, oh, that's not important. At least I'm alive. Or maybe you miss out on a job promotion. Then you say, well, um, I wouldn't have liked the job anyway. The boss was, would have been mean to me. You try to kind of mask your disappointment by kind of ignoring all the bad things that go on in life. See, that's not the way to hope. That's not how you build a resilience in your heart. We don't create hope in our lives by rationalizing away the brokenness uh, the disappointment or the sinfulness in our lives. Hope is to look at these situations and say, yeah, they're, they're pretty bad, they're disappointing, they're hurtful, they're sinful. But hope not only calls us to be realistic about the difficulty, hope calls us to be realistic about the reality that God is present, that he dearly loves his people, he dearly loves you, and is at work in your lives though you may not see it. And so hope not only calls us to, to be resilient and calls us to be realistic, it calls you to be optimistic. There should be a robust optimism regardless of what life is like. To look at the world and to believe that God is present, loving his people. I'm sure each of you experience moments of, of darkness. Um, for some of us, it may be that, that Christmas time, a time where everyone tells us that we should be spending with lots of friends and family. We end up spending alone. Or even though we spend with people, we feel isolated and disconnected from them. It can be really hard. Maybe for some of us, uh, Christmas time, we, we do spend a lot with lots of loved ones, but we feel really anxious about the year ahead. We're starting a new university course. We're starting a new job. We're, we're starting a family. Whatever it is feel really anxious, it feels dark, you feel alone. Maybe for some of us the darkness is that we feel disheartened in our relationship with God. That whatever we've tried to do, attend church, serve at church, read the Bible, pray, God feels seems so far away. See, hopefulness, being reminded of who Jesus is and why he has come, should create this optimism in our hearts. That even in the darkness, God has not left you alone that he's using these moments and these circumstances ultimately to build his kingdom because he loves you, to grow you, to make you more mature. It seems odd that as we read a list of names that we are called to be people of hope. But yet I think that's what Matthew intends, that we see Jesus' story is a story of new beginnings, of God's faithfulness. And because of that, we're hopeful Christians, even as we anticipate the coming of Jesus two weeks time. Why don't I pray that we can be hopeful people during this time. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, you are you're kind to us and you're good to us and we know that because we see that you have sent Jesus. Uh, we pray uh, that even as we read a list of names, this genealogy, that you will remind us of your faithfulness to save us. You'll remind us of your faithfulness 
to bring us into a relationship with you. May that reality shape our everyday lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've heard a strong message across this morning that, uh, yeah, Jesus had come into the world. Um, and while we may not see him now, kind of 